WZBC 90.3 FM. That was uh, Sam Rivers and the piece Mauve from the record Hughes. Richard Davis, bass, Warren Smith, drums, uh, and vibes. And the piece before that was Ivory Black, recorded live at Yale with Sam on piano. Cecil McBee on bass, Barry Altschul on drums, and uh, Barry, Dave Holland, and Warren Smith speaking about the the New York loft scene in the in the 1970s, in particular uh, Studio Rivby. And and you you had actually Russ you Russ Gershon and Alan Chaser here, and and Russ was speaking about actually being there and and seeing the the family in in action. Absolutely. I, I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in New York suburbs and. Um, through the good work of WKCR, the Columbia radio station, and uh, DJs like um, Phil Schapp and Taylor Storer in particular was a guy who was playing this music, um, got turned on to this music, and the lofts were great for a young teenager like myself because they didn't have liquor licenses. You could just walk in. They weren't they didn't, they weren't expensive to go to. I mean, maybe they were five dollars, eight dollars. For a ticket, you know, and if you didn't have it, they'd probably let you in anyway. Right, yeah. And you just sit on the floor and you were, you know, ever, even, you know, scruffy young teenagers with the ripped clothes were treated very seriously. They were, now that I, I'm on the other side, I understand they were happy to have anybody show up. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, but, and it was a great atmosphere and so much good music and presented without any uh, pretension. Very honest and raw. Yeah, yeah they were. Yeah. The musicians were playing for each other and for a very insider crowd, um, and so it was a incredible education for for me and for my friends and fellow musicians. And it sounds like a, a huge sacrifice on the part of the family, the Rivers family as well. From what we were hearing from Dave Holland there. Yeah, it was their living room. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the we were talking about this before too. I think one of the most important trios in jazz is the is the trio with Dave Holland and Barry Altschul and um, this trio performed in 2007 for a 30 year reunion at Columbia University as part of a WKCR marathon and I wanted to hear a few pieces from this this trio um, this this uh, particular permutation of, of uh, Sam Rivers trio we'll play a track from the record The Quest this is recorded live in 76 at a festival in Milan followed by a track from the record Paragon, uh, studio recording the next year. I spoke with Barry Altschul um, about the trio, and uh, here's what he had to say. We didn't talk before we played about the music. I don't think anything was ever talked to me about the music except keep the energy up. I think it's the only thing Sam ever said to me about the music was to keep the energy up. Um, we were a totally 100% improvised band. Of course, during the course of some time, little f- forms came to be, little musical signals came to be, uh, but it was all spontaneous. Nothing was ever planned. We used to, uh, I wouldn't call it a rehearsal, but it was... We used to get together, let's say, we all lived very close to each other during that time. And we used to get together in one of our three houses and play. Let's say we started at 11 o'clock in the afternoon and in the morning and finished at uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And what we did was we just played. We played anything 
we, uh, uh, everything. We played, uh, if I needed to go eat, I left and I went to eat, and they kept playing as a duo. Or, as a, or, or if two people left, a solo or something. But the music was continuous, and it was kind of a, a, a concept uh, from what Sam told me he got from Cecil Taylor, who uh, kind of rehearsed the same way. Where you just played all day long, and and you 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 played through your dead spaces, you played through your uninspired places, you played through your boredom, as well as your inspired places and and your high places. And then when you did a performance, and you only had to play an hour, an hour and a half, I mean you played essence. It was easy. Barry had begun going down to Sam's loft on uh, Bond Street, uh, which eventually became Rivby, the uh, loft, the space that Sam opened up. Sam, uh, Barry had been going over there almost every day and playing duos with Sam, and he said to me, would you like to come over and, and play? And we, I went, and man, uh, I remember those sessions. We played three, four hours nonstop sometimes, just full out, just improvising not using any written material, but just developing uh, compositional settings as we went, you know, setting up figures and feelings and areas and grooves and things. It's like talking to an old friend, you know, you you, you have points of reference, uh, shared realities and things like that. And I think when you improvise together for a long period of time, as we did, um, you know, we just kind of fell into a, a language, you might say, of the music that was there. As far as stamina, I mean, there was a physical aspect to it, of course. Uh, some of the gigs would, would be very long and uh, and very intense. And, you know, that was another lesson that I was learning, which was how to really relax when I played so that uh, you could play at that intense level and still uh, and focus your energy in a way that wasn't, uh, forcing or draining, that you uh, you allowed the energy to sort of come through you and and, uh, and go into the instrument.
must have taken, well, I know he did, we discussed it, a lot of flack for being a leader in the black community and having two white guys in his band, in a trio, no less. <laughs> but yes, I know he went through a lot of hassles with that. As a matter of fact, there was a standing joke. All kinds of drummers wanted me off the gig and called Sam 
and said, let me play the gig, let me audition for you, and let me so on and so forth. Now, Sam and I were very close. I'm talking about family-type close. And not just us, I mean, uh, his brothers, my family, his family, you know, we were that kind of close. So he used to tell me all these things. He used to say, oh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. So So I used to say to him, I said, Sam, if you find someone better than me to play your music, no problem. And so I used to go, <laughs> I used to go down and listen to these guys trying to steal my gig. Me and B, we used to sit in the back of downstairs. They didn't know I was there. And I used to listen to, to the Cabocats were playing with Sam to see if they could steal my gig. <laughs> no one ever did.
listening to WZBC 90.3 FM. My name is Brian Carpenter. This is a program on Sam Rivers. That was the piece Tingle from the record Paragon, 1977. Sam Rivers, piano, bariatral drums, Dave Holland bass. Before that, the track Expectation from the record The Quest, 1976, same band. Uh, Russ Gershon and Alan Chase are here. We're uh, focusing on the music of Sam Rivers. And um, I really found the, the interview with, with Barry and Dave interesting with regard to the preparation, the level of commitment, you know, uh, uh, just, just playing for hours and hours and hours, playing through your down spots, playing through your up spots. Um, and you, you, of course, Russ, you, you've seen this, you, you saw this band live many times. I did. And, and this is bringing back a lot of early memories for me of my own music, because I used to, um, when I was first starting to play jazz, I was playing with a bass player named uh, Jay Joseph, who was studying with Dave. And uh, we would go hear this band play, and then we would retreat to Jay's basement and try to play like this with a drummer. And and I don't I don't think we knew that they rehearsed for hours on end, but that's we would just do it for four or five or six or eight hours at a time um, because it was just infectious. You know, the energy of that band and the sort of pure creativity, um, the energy, the openness that they had to each other, the trust you know um of course they were all like incredibly experienced superior players who had gone through the whole jazz tradition and many other things too and that's how they were able to get to that spot um 
So uh, high level of communication there, and and, yeah. and I, I found that too, even with the trio in the '90s with with Sam, Doug, and Anthony. It's just very inspirational yeah. watching this group. You know, him moving from all the inst- you know from instrument to instrument, and then and then it just going in all these different directions. That track we just heard. Yeah. I mean, just going in so many different directions there. No barriers yeah. between the players or between styles or between, it was just, you really felt like you were really inside of their heads or hearts or souls or whatever. There was no, there was just, you know, it broke down every barrier. Yeah. And, and you know, Sam has, has talked about before of, of possibly being one of the first people to come into a performance with no thematic material. I wonder if there. I wonder if there's some truth to that. I mean, you had Cecil, of course, doing this, and and actually there was some there's some talk in the interview with with um, with with Barry or Dave about how these rehearsals, these these long rehearsals, were were inspired by Sam's rehearsals with Cecil. Of course, Cecil is is you yeah. know known for in, um, these long long rehearsals. I think Sam talked about that doing playing for ten hours with Cecil Taylor at some point. Wow, <laughs> jeez, yeah. right. And then they did the second number. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I. I you know, the only thing I, I wonder about chronologically, but I don't think it's a measure of really influences maybe some of the uh, AACM members, you know, in Chicago were doing mm, totally sure, free improvisation, right. you know, all day in their house, the art ensemble in the early days. And and the group in England of, you know, Evan Parker and Derek Bailey and those people sort of inspired by the rare visit of Albert Eiler or Cecil Taylor kind of going off on their own direction of uh, free playing some of it without composed themes but i mean this is a this is, this is kind of a flow kind of free playing i guess i distinguish it from those mm, interesting what do you mean by flow you mean just same as in hip-hop um <laughs> i think although i'm no expert on that uh there's hustle involved too it, it it's moving forward all the time i mean there's a couple of things about sam's free playing first of all i it's hard to prove this but i don't feel it's uh there's kind of a technical thing, uh, distinction between gestural and pitch-specific improvising. And I feel like every note matters. I guess that's a way to say it. Wow, Rather, it's not just up and down and noise and fast and slow. It's actually that plus every note matters. Like, I mm, think I he knows mm. what he's playing. And I'm not saying it's systematic or pre-thought out. It's spontaneous and inventive. But it's, I think, he, you know, for somebody who's such a master of harmony, I don't think... I think he can bring that into this free playing. Yeah, you, you always hear harmony going by in some way or other. Yeah, where you don't hear that with, say, an Albert Eiler, for example, who's, who's not as much. No. no, I think it's a. I think it's limited in his case, and he does other things amazingly, but not right. that so much. I don't think. No, I agree. Um, and you know, Dave Holland and Cecil McBee, these kind of bass players who can play, and I've heard them, and we've all heard them play everything. You know, anything they can play intricately harmonic music, very rhythmically complicated music traditional, outside, folk, all sorts of things. He can interact with them on that level and the drummer. So I think it's a different kind of free playing, even if you could argue that maybe there was other free playing. Right. Yeah, even when in the last piece where he's playing that very pointillistic piano uh, thing, it's still, the time is still so strong. You know, even though they're not trying to, you know, count off a tempo or something, but everybody's phrases have so so much rhythmic weight mm-hmm. that um, it never. There's never that feeling of like we're just sitting here. That's so right. It's always yeah. moving. It forward. doesn't sound arbitrary. I mean, that top yeah. dun 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 dun. I mean, that's just a very yeah. rhythmic line just to start off the piece well, with. Well, that was yeah. like a yeah. shout chorus from a big band or something. <laughs> right. It was like yeah. bam. 
Yeah. You know, and there's a controlled level of dissonance. You know, not I don't want to get like all music theory on everybody here, but you know what I mean. If you play the piano randomly, you're going to hit things that are consonant dissonant. He's he knows what he's doing. You know, his yeah. fingers are not just going any old place. He <laughs> plays the piano. <laughs> <laughs> he knows the notes on the piano. He's an amazing multi instrumentalist. I mean, he really is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sure he could sit there and play standards all night long and knew a million of them at the piano and yeah. could do them there's oh, sure. no recordings yeah. of that but right. clearly he came through that too that's right you hear that in the in the in the free improv free improvised playing yeah that background mm-hmm. so one of one of my favorite albums is dave holland's conference of the birds and this came up in our conversation off air with dave holland anthony braxton um same band here but very um uh anthony braxton on uh uh on on, on soprano and tenor and I spoke with Dave Holland about this uh, this recording, 1972, uh, Conference of the Birds. After leaving Miles, I uh, left the band uh, along with Sick Career. We both left the group at the same time to start a new group called Circle, which featured uh, Anthony Braxton, a uh, great saxophonist and composer, and Barry Altschul, a very fine percussionist. And... Um, we decided we wanted to focus on that music. It was funny because we'd gone from playing Shea Stadium and the Isle of Wight, you know, 400,000 people to about three people <laughs> with Circle in the clubs. And um, probably two of them were our, either girlfriends or our wives. So uh, it was a, a big difference in, in that respect. But it was something we really wanted to do. Uh, we were very young, of course, and uh, really committed uh, to following our muse and and the band stayed together for about a year and a half and following that I was in New York and when I thought about what I wanted to assemble for the group it seemed only natural that I work with the people that I'd been playing with people that I'd love to work with and that were my inspiration at that time so I sort of put together the two with the three remaining members of Circle, which was because by then Chick was doing uh, Return to Forever and was going in a slightly different direction. So um, I put the three quarters of the Circle group, uh, Anthony, Barry, and myself, and then asked Sam to uh, to be the fourth member, and that's how the band came together. By then, uh, Studio Riv B was going, and we rehearsed the music and then played two nights at Studio Rivby with the quartet and then went in the studio and we did the recording in something like six hours. Sam and Anthony just had very much their own kind of universe, musical universe they were working in. Sam's was much more freewheeling and uh, kind of all out, you know, just basically putting the accelerator all the way down <laughs> and just going for it and Anthony was more deliberate in his playing uh, structuralist and not that Sam didn't deal with structures but uh, though as you can imagine if you're familiar with the both styles they're quite diverse but the beauty of it was that the record really captured that polarity I think in a very positive way it really uh, was one of the things that gave the record such a strong feel in the end was the uh, was bringing together these sort of diverse personalities, and uh, fortunately, we managed to capture it at one of its high moments.
Conference of the Birds, 1972, four wins. Uh, Dave Holland, uh, Barry Altschul, Sam Rivers, and Anthony Braxton there. Soprano, Sam Rivers on tenor. And uh, I, I just love that record. I love the writing. Alan Chase and Russ Gershon are here. I was just talking about the fact this is the first piece I heard of Sam, and you mentioned you mentioned that too. This is your first yeah. encounter. When this came out, I was uh, living in Arizona, and I, I mean, it was. I, I just say that as a reference to how widely this music was distributed, because it's far <laughs> from a hotbed of uh, jazz, cutting edge of jazz. But every musician I knew knew this record. I mean, it was it was a must-have and must-check out record. And for many many people, it was the introduction to both Anthony Braxton and. Uh, Sam Rivers. People knew Dave Holland from Miles Davis Records. Uh, sure, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was on ECM, and that must be the a hot part new of, label. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, very high quality of recording, and you know. and you brought up another interesting point, which is I didn't know, which is that Sam taught at Wesleyan, and we we looked it up here on the internet, seventy one to seventy two. So yeah. they both taught at Wesleyan, and Anthony Braxton has been on the faculty there for uh, a couple of decades. Um, yeah, there's a long space between them. Bill Barron, uh, Kenny Barron's brother, taught there in between, and other people. But yeah, it's sort of the jazz uh, professor. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I want to play a track from uh, the album Waves. This is Sam on flute, also featuring Dave Holland on bass, Thurman Barker on drums, and here's where we add Joe Daly on tuba and baritone horn. Uh, this track is called Torch, 1977. The album is Waves. Thank you. 
the 80s, I started doing some teaching up in Canada in Banff in the summer. In the session, the first day or two, we'd get together with the students and, and start doing some playing with them. And often we'd play some standards, and the students would come to me and say, wow, we, I, we didn't know you could play standards. We didn't know you could play on changes and things like that, because so much of my work had been with Anthony and Sam. And it was extraordinary to me, because when I listen to Sam, I hear everything in there. I, I hear the history, bebop, swing, or the whole thing, blues, you know, R&B, everything was there. And all the way through to his experiences with Cecil. And it's one of the things that made it so satisfying for me was to play with a musician that really embodied so much of the history of the music. My name is um, Joseph Daly. Um, the instruments that I play um, in relationship to, uh, to Sam Rivers with euphonium and tuba. The thing is that the small group of things were totally improvised. You know, there was no 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 notations, no no forethought of what was going to happen on, on stage. We just got on stage. Sam, you know, played the first couple of riffs that he was going to go into, and boom, we were gone. And this would go on sometimes for two, three, you know, two, three straight hours nonstop as Sam moved from from tenor saxophone to soprano saxophone to piano to flute. For me, I wouldn't I wouldn't hear the the entire composition until it was over, and and then somebody brought it, you know, will play it, you know, play it back to me, and I hear it, and I say, oh God, you know, this is a, how does Sam hear that he wanted to evolve from here to here to here to here to end, and it, and and it was always always very uncanny. I don't care what 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 um concert we did. If the if the promoter told Sam, listen, you got an hour to play, uh, Sam would always stop on the hour, and he would never have a watch. And it was, you know, and we walk off the stage, man, and then Sam said, how much time was that? The guy said, it was an hour. <laughs> he would never look at a watch. He would just kind of know and feel. And every time he dropped down to do a groove, there would be a key center in that groove. But after you play with him for a while, every time he dropped down, it would be another key. But he would never drop down into the same key. So if you taught, you know, it's amazing. If you taught for him like for two, two, three weeks, and he dropped down into a groove, uh, I don't know how he kept track of all that stuff. But he would never return to the same key he played the night, the night before. <laughs>
Tremendous endurance to play with Seb. 
because the sets were non, you know, they were non-stop sets, you know, they, and and they were non-stop sets of high energy, you know. I mean, the energy level was it was amazing to see how much how much strength and energy that he would he be able to carry during the set because we were right in the middle of the set and I'm figuring, you know, you know, we got to be tiring now and all of a sudden Sam would just get this first of energy and then boom we were back you know we were back to high energy because you know it was necessary for that part of the composition so um so the composition his mental desire for the composition dictated exactly how the ensembles moved the small ensembles moved there was so much um thematic intuition into what sam was playing that we could always accompany him and find some space where we could collaborate like that. And a lot of it did sound like it was through composed music, but it, it was completely improvised. But, he, you know, of course, he had to pick people that could keep up with him, kind of, you know. So I guess that's why we have such a longevity, because Joe and I kind of fit into those slots. That's Warren Smith there speaking on the subject of working with Sam Rivers and uh, and Joe Daly. We heard a track from the Tuba Trio on the Cir- on Circle Records, 1976, and before that, a track from the record Waves, 1978. Uh, the piece was called Torch, and Joe Daly uh, speaking in there, tubist Joe Daly, uh, drummer Warren Smith, and uh, bassist Dave Holland speaking on... Uh, on the the free improvised uh, trio work, I love I love the tuba sound on that. You mm. know, Joe is just such an amazing, great. amazing player. Great voice. Yeah, it's really great how he fits into it and how he and Dave Holland interact. And it's, a, it's an unexpected, a very odd instrumental combination. That's you right, know, it's yeah. definitely <laughs> different. <laughs> well, we were talking about that as maybe you know Sam being one of the first to incorporate the tuba in this role. Um, you know, you, you you hear Henry Threadgill later with Very Very Circus. You know, taking the tuba, the two tubas, and moving in a, in a, in a direction uh, with with mm-hmm. tuba being the bass role. But here, you know, really is is Joe Daly's got his work cut out for him here. He's, you know, he's yeah. he is the bass he is the bass part, and he's got a in a free jazz context. I can hardly think of another. I mean, uh, Threadgill's use of two tubas. I mean, that, that they're playing a lot of they're improvising, but they're playing very written specific compositional lines right. together. And this is you don't hear. Free jazz tuba. I can't really think of any other yeah. places. Yeah, the earlier jazz tuba things that I can think of are the tubas functioning as a horn soloist, you know, or right, playing yeah. a role you well, know, written on song. Like with Miles Ahead, you hear, you know, yeah. right? It's or, it's the bottom of the horn section. Yeah. Or later, like Howard Johnson or the Ray Draper with Coltrane. You know, they're they're right. they're like a they're low, in the horn uh, section, yeah, yeah, like a valve section. trombone. Or going back forward. all the way to New Orleans, and then the mm-hmm. you know it's play, the the tubas playing the bass function, but he's right. but it's. Not free. It's not free. No, it's, it's more of a. And, and most of those guys were bass players. Were upright bass players. A lot mm-hmm. of those guys. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Ralph Escudero and a lot of those guys from the late 1920s were bass players, who 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 were not basically were not brass players. You know, and you hear that in their playing. Where obviously Joe Daly is, a, he has to be a brass player in order to play in that way. Man, so in tune. Him yeah. and Dave are like. It, to, if you're out of tune in that register, it's. It's just oh, a tragedy man. for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bad idea. Yeah, their interactions—they're very fearless, like tangling in this low register, and it's—it really just—it's a different texture than any other group I've ever heard. 